in this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast. ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with Kidney News Editor-in-Chief Pascal Lane, MD, about the news magazine. Dr. Lane, ASN launched Kidney News in 2009 with six issues. It went monthly in 2010, and you're starting your third year in 2011. I'm wondering, what are some of your plans for 2011? Well, once again, we're going to continue to have much the same that we've had over the past year. We're looking forward next year to actually doing 11 issues. We've decided that since the on-site issue for ASN is such a huge issue and trying to get it printed and into uh, the bags that we give out on site and things like that has made producing an October and a November issue a little bit of a trick. So we'll probably combine those two issues and have just a single on-site issue that will be for both October and November next year. Otherwise, we're planning to do monthly issues. We have several months planned for special sections with a theme and a number of articles that are devoted to a single topic, much as we did with diabetic nephropathy, special nephrology, and cardiovascular disease and nephrology this year. What are some of the other topics that you have planned for 2011? Well, our biggest one, and my my favorite, I'm going to call something along the lines of stones and bones. We've got Letterer and Moe together as our guest editors for that issue, and we're going to look at calcium phosphorus metabolism in the kidney and uh, the formation of kidney stones and their contribution to bone health. What topic have you not been able to cover in Kitty News, either as a feature topic or even in a, in a briefer article that you would like to address in the near future? There's not a lot that we haven't been able to at least address at the article level. There's some things that we could probably expand upon, especially with uh, some of the manpower issues, uh, looking at our workforce, trying to figure out you know, how we can get more trainees into nephrology to meet the needs of our patient population. Uh, but we've at least been able to do you know, articles on those topics. In terms of workforce, um, in addition to the physician workforce, um, there's also concerns about the availability of, of nurses, of physicians, assistants, and other providers. And I'm wondering, as you think about covering workforce, what are some of the major topics you'd want to hit? Well, one of my personal concerns has been why women don't want to seem to go into nephrology. Well, we're one of the specialties that has the fewest women fellows of anything uh, reported by the American Board of Internal Medicine. I think it's a little more balanced than that on my side in pediatrics, but still, it, as a, a woman in nephrology, I found it to be a great career option for me, and I'm not certain what the issues are there. We do also need more nurses, more PAs, other uh, physician extenders, if you will, to try and meet the needs of our population. We're working with the physician's assistant organizations, put together some articles dealing with their roles in the care of patients with various types of kidney disease, both from a primary care issue all the way through to specialized PAs who may work in dialysis units or with the transplant population. We've tried to get other aspects of patient care into an issue at least once a year with a focus on multidisciplinary care this last year. 
in the focus on nephrology nursing the year before, uh, to bring in all the nurses, nurse specialists, social work, and all the other aspects of renal care that are required uh, and just good medicine. You mentioned that nephrology attracts fewer women than most other specialties, including internal medicine specialties. As someone who's a mentor and an educator, when you meet with a medical student or a resident, a female medical student or resident, how do you encourage them to think about nephrology? Well, I usually tell them what a great career in life I've had as a nephrologist and as someone in academic medicine. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of them believe me that this has been the greatest job in the world for me. I've gotten to do a lot of things besides taking care of patients. I've gotten to do educational things, uh, research things, certainly a whole broad range of elements in my career that I wouldn't have had if I'd gone into private practice. The issue that I see most of the time among women you know, being in pediatric nephrology, I'm talking with pediatrics residents. Uh, most of them are, well, I'm wanting to start a family. I don't want to take time out for fellowship. So we're, we're fighting that problem that it does take additional years of training to become a nephrologist. I keep talking, though. One of these days, uh, we'll talk another one into joining us. So what are some of your research interests? Well, my lab over the years has been interested in why puberty is bad for the kidney. In particular, in diabetic nephropathy, there is an unmasking or acceleration of kidney disease around the time of puberty. And it's pronounced enough that uh, the ADA guidelines for screening for nephropathy don't have you really start aggressively screening for microalbuminuria until the time of pubertal development. This may have something to do with sex steroids, rising blood pressures. Uh, we're really not certain what. The other interesting observation is when you look at the registries of children with chronic kidney disease across the world, most of which have kids with some degree of hypoplasia or dysplasia who have a static lesion that's not progressive other than the general mechanisms of progression, around the time of puberty, you see the rate of loss of GFR increase dramatically. So there's something that's happening in the kidney at that time of life that is making kidney disease worse. So we've been looking at that and trying to figure out what that might be. Why did you become a pediatric nephrologist? Uh, when I started medical school, I didn't think I was going to go into pediatrics. I really was the candy striper who never wanted to work the playroom. I didn't like babysitting. Nobody saw me doing this. And then when I started doing pediatrics as a medical student, I was very interested in the diseases that children got and how to help them. And then when I got into my residency, they had a very strong nephrology section, and I got very interested in what they were doing with their patients. So it was just one of those things, nothing that I calculated I was going to do. Just once I did it, I knew that this was where I belonged. So circling back to your comments about workforce, it sounds as if part of the reason why you were attracted to pediatrics and to nephrology was educational experience, the opportunity to, to spend time in, in both disciplines. Do you think that's part of the issue now that perhaps medical students in particular are not exposed at least to nephrology as much as they may have been? I think that may be part of it. I think one of the other issues is that the nephrology they get exposed to 
may not be some of the fun parts of nephrology. I had done an adult nephrology rotation as a medical student, uh, which at the time I did it was basically doing general internal medicine in patients who happened to be on chronic dialysis. And I'd already decided I was going into pediatrics because I didn't like the general internal medicine sorts of stuff. So uh, that didn't hold that kind of appeal for me. Um, I think if med students got to see some of the more fun things we do, particularly some of the outpatient diagnoses that we get to make, um, those sorts of things, that they might um, be more enthusiastic about it. I think it's also important to try and get more nephrologists involved in the first two years of the medical school curriculum, in particular the second year. I know at uh, my own school, the first year curriculum is taught pretty much by the basic scientists. They do, however, have some clinicians who come in and do some lectures to try and demonstrate why uh, learning these basic principles is important. In the second year, when we shift to pathophysiology, it's much more appropriate to have clinicians teaching those courses. I think it's good for the students at that point to see that someone who is in academic medicine and doing research and teaching them uh, is actually there and, and will talk to them and tell them all about what they do. I know that's been a particularly fun thing for me, and I've had a number of students who've shadowed me in clinic based on that experience. How do you make time to maintain your research, to teach the next generation, to see patients, and also to edit the, uh, the kidney news? Well, I am lucky in that uh, I've got section and a department that value all the various things I do and give me time to do them. You know, certainly that's one of the joys of being in academic medicine rather than private practice, where anytime you do something that isn't a billable patient service, you know, you're losing money. Whereas I'm paid a flat salary, and I, you know, obviously I'm doing stuff the whole day, and I'm busy, and I do work at home and on weekends and things like that. But a lot of times, this is stuff I find enjoyable uh, and don't mind doing. So it, it, you know, there's a lot of organizational skill here too. If you want to get something to get done, uh, the first person I'd ask is a mother with multiple children because she knows how to juggle a lot of stuff. Your view of the kidney community, how has it changed as you've become the editor-in-chief of Kidney News? Well, I see it, certainly see it as much broader than I used to. Uh, I used to think of primarily my local community and, okay, we've got this group of nephrologists, we've got the ones who are in academia, and you'd meet a few people here and there and the nurses in the dialysis unit. Well, now I meet people who have organized the way they take care of patients with kidney disease far differently than any place that I've ever worked locally. There are far more people involved that I've gotten to meet as a course over the course of uh, this job. And I think that we're trying to serve the needs of all of them. I also have met both virtually and in real life a lot more kidney patients than I ever would have known on my own and gotten to hear their points of view about a whole variety of issues that they find important. And what are some of those issues that, that patients think are very important? I'm always surprised to find out there are patients who are 
afraid of transplantation and that there are um, other patients who feel like they have to advocate for transplantation. To me, it seems obvious that anybody with kidney disease would want to get a transplant, and I was surprised to find out that there are patients who drag their feet and don't want to get listed and don't want to try to get a new organ. Is there a difference between men and women? Uh, I know statistically I think women are less likely uh, to go for a transplant, and I'm not certain that uh, anyone has identified the exact reasons why that is. But uh, I know in, in a couple of survey studies, they've shown that women were less likely to seek out transplant information and to allow themselves to be listed. How about for African-Americans and Caucasians? African-Americans have a more difficult time getting transplanted. They also tend to do better on dialysis than Caucasians do. I'm not certain how much of that would be because uh, African-American patients don't seek out transplant versus don't get the opportunity to seek out a transplant. I think some of the changes that have been made uh, in the renal care regulation in the last year will get over some of these barriers because we absolutely have to document that we've talked to the patient about transplant opportunities and offered them resources and things like that. You know, from a pediatric standpoint, we're talking about transplant before we even talk about access most of the time. So it's something that sort of confuses and amazes me when I hear about it. So you mentioned the public policy arena and sort of legislative and regulatory changes, and there's at least sort of three big issues um, during the past year. One is the, the final rule on bundled payment under Medicare and state renal disease program. The second is the proposed rule on the quality initiative within the SRD program. And the third is health reform. And just to sort of walk through each of these really quickly, the bundled payment, how do you see that affecting how we deliver care for patients with end-stage renal disease? Well, we have been bundled for some time with various services, and we've just added to the bundle. It may change what drugs are used. It may also change how aggressively some things are treated since not everything is going to get reimbursed separately because it's included in the bundle. I am hoping that it will have little negative impact on the quality of care. Certainly, uh, when you do things like this, people will be tempted to look at the way to maximize the payment that they can maintain and to minimize what it costs them to deliver that care. I'm hoping that doesn't happen and that we continue to deliver high care to the end-stage renal disease population. And I'm hoping that the um, bundling doesn't make that impossible. Do you anticipate the Kidney News will be dedicating a fair amount of sort of column inches to the, the rollout of the bundle on January 1st and perhaps unintended consequences, positive or negative? Oh, I have the feeling that if you like to read about renal policy, you're going to love the first couple of issues of Kidney News next year, just from uh, the issues of how many things are changing. I suspect uh, we're going to see a lot about the new bundling rules. So then the other big issue in addition to the bundling and, and the quality payments is, of course, the Affordable Care Act, the health reform. And, you know, that obviously a lot has been written about um, the potential impact on the physician workforce and on also the nursing workforce. 
so that would be one question I would have is, you know, do you think there will be issues in terms of the availability of primary care physicians, and if so, how that may affect nephrologists? Well, I, I think we can look at the experience in Massachusetts. Last year, I got to hear the governor of Massachusetts give a talk about what had happened, and basically one of their biggest problems was they no longer had enough primary care physicians to serve a suddenly insured population. I think we may see that with uh, the primary care physicians um, as the Affordable Health Care Act comes into effect. Now, we are phasing in the components of that over the next few years, uh, as opposed to Massachusetts, where it all sort of went into effect more, more quickly. So I'm hoping that we will be able to make other policy adjustments that will increase uh, training of physicians as more and more medical school classes have increased in size recently, and then at least part of those physicians will go into primary care. I think it's also important that a lot of those physicians go into nephrology since regardless of what else we do, the population is going to keep aging and we're going to keep seeing an increase in the number of people with end-stage renal disease. So as you think about AS and Kidney News, say, in three years, so the, the 2014 issues, what do you think the, the big topics will be then? Well, I think we will still be uh, seeing a lot of stuff on policy. Uh, by then, we will have some idea of what effect the changes in the bundling regulation have on patient care and outcomes and the cost of uh, end-stage renal disease therapy. And we'll also have begun phasing in more of the Affordable Health Care Act, and we'll uh, be able to see what happens with that, um, assuming it doesn't get altered again between now and then. So I suspect that health care policy is always going to be a big topic for Kidney News. I'm hoping that we'll have other things to write about, though. I'm sincerely hoping that we'll have some more treatments for some kidney diseases by then. I know a couple of the recent trials of mTORs in um, polycystic kidney disease didn't go as planned, but I'm hoping that we'll have something for that disorder in the near future, given what we've learned about it, and who knows where the next breakthrough will be. Has Kidney News um, featured bioengineering, and, and if, if not, is that a topic that you'd be interested in sort of having, dedicating an issue to? Yeah, we have not done a lot with bioengineering yet. That is certainly another topic that I think we could pull in for a special section in the future. Because this year for the first time, for, for Renal Week 2010, there was an abstract category for bioengineering, and I was surprised by the sheer number of abstract submissions we, we received in that category. And so, you know, I would anticipate moving forward that that may be, you know, an area that we start seeing even more development, you know, more people interested in. And it seems to me that it's the type of topic that the next generation of nephrologists may find really interesting in terms of, you know, career path. Don McCoy is the managing editor of, of Kidney News, and I'm just wondering if you could describe how you work with Don to develop each issue. Don and I speak on the phone at least once a week and have typically multiple emails back and forth a day to talk about various things. We generally sit down sometime uh, during the summer typically. For example, we had the editorial calendar for next year at least drafted in August. 
part of that is to try and figure out issues that we have that might lend themselves to cross-marketing kidney news to um, meetings of other organizations. So we come up with some of our special section ideas then. We also meet with the editorial board and have frequent emails with our editorial board throughout the year to get other ideas for topics that are hot, that are up and coming, and that we need to think about devoting some space to. In addition, we ask some of our board members to submit articles on topics where we may not have enough for an entire special section. We've got a couple of people who provide us with regular content, and then we also always review the press releases that we receive both from the ASN journals and from other journals that are now letting us know when they're publishing something interesting. A lot of our front page stories come from those sorts of articles where we'll have a reporter cover it and get other opinions and try to do a more in-depth assessment of the journal article itself. We, like I said, we're talking periodically, reviewing things. Both of us are looking at what we see in the news and online and anywhere else we can connect that might be interesting uh, for the people in kidney news. We then try to get content from people. Uh, this ends up with one or both of us annoying people by email until they get their articles in, although in general we've had pretty good responses and people are generally getting material to us pretty quickly. We're also delighted now that we've gotten a bunch of articles and article ideas sent to us from people who just thought of something interesting and weren't certain that their idea was good for a journal to look at but thought it was perfect for a magazine. And many of those have become articles in Kidney News. And one point that I would make is that an opportunity that, that a news magazine offers is to, to take several different ideas and consider some of the unifying themes and then to, to present them in a way that perhaps people haven't thought about. And so it gives you a lot more editorial freedom you know, if you are interested in, in submitting an article to you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have had people submit all sorts of things to us that weren't necessarily – the kind of things that you can put in a journal. Uh, we do have the freedom to publish stuff that isn't necessarily you know, statistically worthy or peer-reviewable, but it's of interest and brings up a point that we'd like to see people in the nephrology community discussing. And I think it's important to point out that the editorial relationship between Kidney News and ASN is the same that the society has with Jason and C. Jason. In other words, it, it is truly, um, you know, ASN is the publisher, but, but you have, you and, and the editorial board have the control of the editorial content. That's absolutely correct. Um, but the only thing that I hear about from ASN is when renal week is so that we can plan that issue for the on-site issue. I have not been told anything that I could or could not print over the course of uh, the magazine's existence. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is that we do have a very clear firewall between the editorial board and staff and our content generation portion and the advertisement section. We try to get the editorial calendar together so that the people who sell ads 
can say, well, they're having a special section on cardiorenal or whatever, uh, and, you know, people may want to know that so that they can advertise, but certainly we do not arrange our content uh, because of what an ad- any advertiser wants. Dr. Lane, I started today's discussion by asking you about your plans for 2011, and, and you really focused on editorial content. Are there other um, initiatives you have planned for Kidney News during the next year? Well, we are hoping to get an electronic version going uh, sometime during 2011. We're beginning to work with our uh, printers uh, to see what their capabilities are as far as providing a dynam- dynamic electronic uh, content that would complement the printed version and not merely duplicate it the way we're doing right now with posting uh, the issues online in PDF format. We're very excited about what we've seen so far, and I'm hoping that in a few more months we'll be able to put out a real interactive version of Kidney News Online. And I should say that from a, an administrative perspective, I'm very excited about the fact that you'll be able to do this with Kidney News. You are the, the first person in the organization to produce a podcast. You are the first person in the organization to use Twitter to communicate during Renal Week. And I anticipate that you will be, you know, able to create a, a dynamic and innovative online version of Kidney News. So I'm really excited about this development. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.